gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the uh, Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, so it's been a week since the, uh, uh, I don't mean to be glib about it, you know, but the special episode of uh, the Remnant last week. And um, people keep asking me how I'm doing. I'm fine. Really? I'm okay. Um, what I don't want to start doing is like turn you know, part of this podcast into the weekly, you know, grief update, sort of like the canine update in the G file. Um, but you know, it's a, what is it? 10 days since my mom died and, uh, a week since that, uh, difficult podcast. And, um, so probably this is the last time I'll do anything like an update and I'm not going to do it for the whole thing. I'll give you, I'll talk about it for just a couple of minutes. I find it a little useful because it, saves me the 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 need uh to do conversations like this retail with people um which can be really overwhelming sometimes um so again i'm i'm okay i mean one of the only silver linings to having been through so many people i love you know in my family dying is that i can at least recognize the sort of psychological and physical elements of, of, of sort of the grief and the stress, um, better than, you know, maybe somebody who's not been through this kind of thing before. And, um, you know, one of the things that, that it's a terrible analogy, but it's sort of physically, it's about as apt as I can come up with. It's sort of like, um, extreme jet lag. Like I was on, like, even though I've caught up on my sleep, my, it was like I was on, you know, back to back to back Singapore, flights to Singapore or something. And so my body clock is all messed up and my biorhythms are all messed up. And, um, I'm sort of crankier some of the time that I normally would be sort of quicker to get mad, quicker to get sad, quicker to cry, um, quicker to laugh and all that kind of stuff. And it's sort of like, um, I haven't, relearned how to modulate my voice in, in terms of, you know, on a sort of metaphysical level. Um, and, uh, um, and that's okay. You know, you got to give yourself permission for that kind of thing. Um, heard from a lot of people about, you know, what a nice job I did on the G file tribute to my mom and all that. And, uh, I appreciated all that, you know, but it's, just trying to be sort of a little dispassionate. It's kind of funny. You know, I've long said that annoyance is a muse. Um, I wrote about that in my underrated second book, Tyranny of Clichés, that being annoyed by things, um, being aggravated, um, being pissed off, um, makes it, I mean, I, I think this is true for a lot of writers, certainly opinion writers, maybe not for medical textbook writers or something, but uh for people in my line of work, it's having, having an, a thing that, you know, a burr in your saddle, um, helps. And, you know, the, this comes from the George Will story where when he asked William F. Buckley for advice about column writing, when he first got into the business, you know, 
in the early 70s, uh, Bill said to George, you know, George asked, how am I going to write two columns a week? And, and Bill said, oh, it'll be easy. At least two things a week will annoy you. And it's true. Like I can come up with a column top. I, I know how to come up with column topics pretty well, having been doing this for so long. But uh, if I see someone on TV or if I read someone on an op-ed page, that's worth responding to in particular. Um, or if I see a president saying something that just pisses me off or annoys me, um, it's much easier to write a column. And the truth is it's not just annoyance. It's just, I mean, annoyance or, uh, or, or anger helps more than some emotions, but basically it's just being emotionally driven, right? If you think something's hilarious, you can have, you can run, you can, you know, you, you can run with the wind with at your back kind of thing. Um, it's like running downhill. Uh, eventually I'll come up with the correct colloquialisms or uh, analogies. Uh, it's still early. And so I, I appreciate people saying that that G files was, was really good, but you know, it was hard for me to write, but the writing itself was easy. And I, what I mean, it's a hard thing to kind of explain if you're not necessarily a writer, but you know, I wrote the thing I in like two and a half hours or something like that. Um, because I had complete access to the part of my brain, my soul, whatever you want to say, that wanted to get at least one idea across. It, it wasn't the final word about my mom or my family or any of that kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, you know, it's, it's sort of like telling a photographer that they took a fantastic picture when they took a picture of, um, you know, I don't know, a border collie rescuing a baby from a burning building. Um, yeah, good for you for taking the picture at the right time and all that kind of stuff. But the actual contents of the picture help a lot. You know, it wasn't taking a picture of um, a fat guy eating soup. It was, you know, this dramatic thing. And sometimes I think, I think this is more less a problem for audiences uh, or readerships than it is for um, actual writers and stuff is that they confuse um, being very fortunate with the subject matter they're dealing with uh, driving interest with their own skill at or artistry in conveying it. Um, and so anyway, I, it's just something that's been occurring to me as I read some of these things. Um, and I would prefer all sorts of circumstances where I hadn't had to write it. So anyway, I'm going to move on because again, we're not doing these grief update things. Um, um, I don't want to, you know, uh, what would you call it? Munchausen by podcast. I, you know, it just, it's not, it, it's a bad look. It's a bad feel. So, you know, I am sure as time goes on, there'll be appropriate times to talk about these various kinds of issues. Um, but I'm not gonna, you know, I'm, I'm done doing this here. Um, which is why I wanted to do it last week rather than wait all week to do it today. Um, so midterms are coming and, um, 
you know, one of my dearly old secrets is I'm less interested in this stuff than a lot of people are. I always have been. I'm even less interested now that I have, I mean, I'm professionally interested. Don't get me wrong. I'm more interested than your average American, which is not a thing to brag about. Um, at least not necessarily. Um, but I'm not, you know, I know people, good people, friends of mine, coworkers of mine who love the midterms. This is, this is, you know, this is the, the, you know, their Super Bowl kind of thing, or at least their playoffs, right? I guess presidentials are the Super Bowl. And, um, um, I have to always like, what's that guy's name in Nevada and who's running again in New Hampshire and all that kind of stuff. And part of that I will admit is that I've been more distracted, you know, this time around than I have in years past for all the previous obvious reasons. But, um, another part of it is just simply that, um, I, uh, um, well, another part of it is that I, I think so much of it is just sort of BS um, where people work themselves up into, um, crazy sort of, um, almost hysteria about the stakes, about the issues, about the petty insults to my guy or your guy or the, you know, or the, the media coverage. And I'm not saying all those, all the substance behind those complaints and arguments isn't accurate. Like I, I actually think like Brett, Brett, Brett Bear is a friend um, I like Martha McCallum. I don't think they did a great job on the town hall with Vance and um, Tim Ryan. I thought they were much harder on Tim Ryan than they were on Vance. I thought it was really funny when Britt Hume afterwards said that one of the most remarkable things about this town hall was that the name Donald Trump didn't come up. Uh, well, one of the reasons why it didn't come up is because Martha and Brett didn't ask about it. Um, and, you know, I also think that, uh, Chuck Todd did a pretty bad job and I, and Chuck's a friend too, but I think he did a pretty bad job or an unfortunate job in how he tried to talk about the Pelosi attack as, you know, as just sort of trying to bully Chris Sununu into blaming it all on Trump and, and, and sort of doing a, you know, yeoman work and narrative policing, um, and claiming that attacks on Nancy Pelosi in congressional ads um, led to this violence, which I just think is, which we can get to some of that in a second, I guess. Um, which I just think is nonsense. Um, um, in the sense that people have been, I mean, like, if, 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 if you think that, that, you know, congressional campaign ads in Iowa, um, were first of all, tougher on Pelosi than the, this time around than they were in 2018 or whatever. Um, or 2020, uh, you know, I just don't think that's true. And I don't think there, I also don't think it's true that they were particularly tougher on Pelosi than they were on say Tom DeLay or John Boehner, um, when they were speakers or I guess DeLay wasn't speaker. He was whip, but like they really demonized, um, DeLay who I wasn't a huge fan of, but I mean, they really demonized DeLay. Um, Moreover, the idea that like nasty ads about Nancy Pelosi in Iowa or Illinois or Indiana or even states that don't begin with I have some effect on some hippie, you know, schizophrenic drug addict in Southern California. Uh, 
I just don't see the connective tissue there. Uh, anyway, we can get back to that. My only point is, is that like, I, I'm not saying that the substance of people's, you know, uh, arguments about the midterms is um, without merit necessarily. I just don't get all that invested in it. And I'm not as good at some of this stuff as, you know, uh, you know several people at the dispatch. Um, Starwalt, Nick Cataggio, you know, Sarah, um, who just are much more, you know, granular about their, and, and comprehensive in their knowledge of this kind of thing. But um, also, it's just like, and I've been talking about this a lot on this podcast for a while now, but I just don't have the rooting interest in Republicans that I, I once did. You know, I always try to keep it clear. And, you know, I wrote this a dozen times more over the last 25 years that I don't particularly care about calling myself a Republican, but I do care about calling myself a conservative. But I root for the Republican Party because it's the more conservative of the two parties. And, um, and I also just think, I think the Republican Party had, um, had the higher moral ground for a lot of the last 20 years. I do. And I know a lot of liberals who think that's insane and crazy and all that kind of stuff. And I just disagree with them. Um, I think, I think fidelity to the constitution, um, is a moral position. Um, I think caring about debt and deficits is a moral position. Um, I don't give a lot of credit for people's, um, compassion and generosity for borrowing money to, to, or, or taxing, um, people and giving the money to somebody else and saying, aren't I generous? You're not generous. You're just taking other people in. You, know, you might be right to do it. I don't think in a lot of cases you are, but you might be right to do it, but you're not generous, right? You're not, you're not, um, giving of yourself, you're buying vote and political support. And whether you agree with the actual public policy that you're implementing or not in some serious intellectual way is almost beside the point for the moral preening that goes on. I also think that the left has been responsible for, you know, I think identity politics is poisonous. I think it's more poisonous when the right embraces identity politics. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I've kind of, uh, stopped rooting for the right is like the, the, the version of the right right now, um, in a lot of these races is one that, you know, you know, I just, I can't get worked up one way or the other if some of these jackasses win or lose. And, um, I'm very much in a Kissingerian, uh, Iran, Iraq war kind of mindset these days. And, um, so anyway, that's where I'm coming from on the midterms. Uh, that said, let's do the punditry, punditry cause I gotta, you know, it's part of what I do. Um, I think it's pretty obvious that the, uh, the, the Republicans will take the house. I haven't poured over 538 or any of that stuff recently, but I would, um, I would guess it's pretty close to the norm of the last 40 years, which is about. Uh, 24 seats, um, you know, could it go over 30? Sure. Could it go under 20? Sure. But um, I would say it's going to be in the meaty part of the 20s. Um, and um, on the Senate, I said on the Dispatch podcast yesterday, uh, out today, that I think the Senate comes in 52 seats for Republicans. Um, I'm not sure which two seats put it over the top because I think there's a lot of volatility, but it just as a sort of probability game, um, there are enough 
races that look like they can tilt to the Republicans and it just feels like the tide is with the Republicans. So that's where my, my guess is. Um, and, uh, um, I talked to this reporter yesterday from uh, Reuters who was asking me about all of this stuff. And, you know, he was asking about Trump's hold on the party. And, um, I think Trump will come out of, if, if, if my predictions are my, they're not my predictions, they're my guesses. Uh, but, um, if my guesses are right about how the election goes, Trump will take a lot of credit for it. It'll help him internally in the, um, in the GOP and he, in politics, you're free to take credit for things. I mean, like if, if Donald Trump were the only politician who ever took credit for things he didn't deserve credit for, um, that'd be one thing, but it is inherent to politics to take credit for things that you're not responsible for. Um, or you're only tangentially associated with, I mean, Joe Biden, uh, took credit and then had to kind of claw it back for, um, the, the mandatory, uh, COLA increases for social security benefits, um, as if he did it. And, um, you know, cause it happened on his watch. I mean, that's the part of the problem with presidents in general is that if it happens on your watch, you take credit for it. Presidents don't run the economy, by the way. Um, and if you only believe that when your party is out of power or, or when your president is doing badly, um, then you don't actually believe it. And, um, but anyway, I think that what people don't understand about the, the role Trump plays is that he is still not popular in the country. And since the earliest days of his, you know, uh, presidency at the very least, if not his candidacy, his superpower has always been that he can damage other Republicans, but he's much weaker in terms of damaging politicians um, in the Democratic Party. And that's because he has a firm grasp on about, give or take a third of the Republican Party. But that third constitutes probably even even greater share of the uh, of the small donor base and of the primary voting base. And depending on the state, you know, and the climate and all that. And that just gives him the power to uh, deny people nominations in the Republican Party. And um, and this is something we've talked about a lot on here. You know, the incentive to be reelected has always been there. But the problem now is that the, um, the pressure point, the, the weak point, the vulnerability point about getting reelected or elected is in the nominating process, not in the general election, at least for a lot of races. And so you have lots of politicians in both parties who do crap, um, who think that they are, um, constrained in their, uh, feel the sphere of action by whether or not they will get, um, it, they will get a primary challenge and that's messed up. And that's why people like Chris Darwell and I are just so obsessed with getting rid of primaries because it's so stupid. Um, and so I think he'll come out of the, if the Republicans do well, he'll come out of it taking credit for a lot of races he deserves no credit for. And, a few, but a few candidates he does deserve credit for. Like if JD Vance pulls it out, JD Vance, owes will owe being a senator to Donald Trump um, because Trump's power was strongest in these open primaries where there were a lot of contestants or candidates and 
you know, a endorsement from Trump was good for like 10 or 15 points, maybe, or even, even six points. Um, that's all it would take in a lot of these things when you're dividing up the electorate into, you know, um, five ways. And, um, he gave, I mean, it's very plausible that he gave JD Vance, um, the nomination because he was behind until he got Trump's endorsement. You make probably make a similar argument for Blake Masters. Trump certainly will. And you can go down the list. But, you know, like Georgia shows the limits of Trump's power. Um, you know, Brian Kemp and, and Brad Raffensperger are, um, were at the top of his enemies list, maybe just behind Liz Cheney. And they both got the nomination and got, um, are going to get reelected. Um, and I think part of that has to do with the fact that there were, there was a lot of scar tissue in Georgia because Trump cost Georgia two of its Senate seats, or at least definitely one, probably both. And, and so voters there were less inclined to sort of follow his bidding, um, even though everyone got out of the way for Herschel Walker. And that was a dumb decision. Um, because, if, again, as, as Steyerwalt has argued, um, you know, if you put just your typical vanilla party hack Republican um, on the ticket, that would have crushed Warnock. The whole point of a race like that is when the incumbent has lots of negatives. Uh, what you want to do is nominate someone with no negatives who's just kind of boring and is, and lets the race being a referendum on the incumbent. And um, which is why it would be very smart for the Republican party not to nominate Donald Trump, by the way. Um, particularly if Biden runs again. Um, and, uh, uh, but by nominating Herschel Walker, they made this, um, this is probably going to go to a runoff. If, if it had been, I don't know, Jack Kingston or someone like that, I'm trying to think of Georgia congressman or whatever. Um, Republicans would have taken, you know, it, the Republican candidate would have been tied with, with Brian Kemp, might even be doing better than Brian Kemp right now. Um, but, you know, there you have it. All right, enough with the stupid punditry. Oh, except for one point. You know, uh, this is the thing I wanted to mention. Um, I was thinking about writing about the other day, but I decided not to. The, um, you hear this all the time in, uh, you know, this time around, it's Republicans saying it about Democratic opponents, particularly in the House. It's like, you know, my opponent voted 100% of the time with Nancy Pelosi. And it's true, right? I mean, I think for the large part, uh, those stats are correct. But I think this is a good example of how screwing up uh, the mechanisms and institutions of, of government has knock-on effects all over the place, right? So one of the, because like when Paul Ryan was speaker, Democrats used to say it about Republicans. You know, my opponent voted 100% of the time with Paul Ryan. Um, and the reason for this is that this is something that's kind of hard to explain to a lot of people, um, maybe because it's so boring, but uh, it's been a trend building for the last two decades where basically legislation is written in the speaker's office. Paul Ryan made the problem worse and he, and I've talked to him about it. He's got explanations for why it was necessary. And, you know, some of it has to do with the freedom caucus and yada, yada, yada. And Nancy Pelosi has made the problem even worse. Um, and it's probably for the similar reasons, very tight margins and has to do with like the squad and the progressive caucus. And 
the whole point is, is that the legislation is basically baked by leadership and then presented as a fait accompli to members of Congress and says, and, and say, you have to vote up or down on this. And as a rule, the leadership doesn't bring out the legislation until it has already whipped the vote and made sure that they have all the votes for it. It's still a valid criticism to say my opponent voted 100% of the time for Nancy with Nancy Pelosi or 100% of the time with Speaker Ryan or whatever. But the problem is, is that we have, you know, under the radar, redesigned the legislative process to make that a feature, make that kind of voting pattern a feature of our politics rather than a bug. I don't like the feature. I would rather it be a bug. But we've we've turned the legislative process essentially into a parliamentary process in many ways. Although I think parliaments still have committees and stuff, but go back and watch schoolhouse rock, you know, how a bill becomes a law. It's completely inverted. Um, the way this stuff is supposed to work. And, you know, in the schoolhouse rock thing, there's some problem with like bus cross, you know, bus stop signs or something like that. And someone calls their congressman and the congressman does an investigation and it goes to a committee and the committee argues about it. And then they debate about it on the floor and then they send it to the Senate and then the Senate argues about it. And then they send it back to the house and yada, yada, yada. And today I am still just a bill. And, and so it goes, but the whole point is, is that it, it, the, the problem arises from a, a, a you know, it's very Hayekian, right? This is why Hayek likes common law um, or judge made laws. Like judges have to deal with the specific problem in play two farmers dealing with the same field, who has the right, who has the water rights, who who can let their cattle graze, that kind of stuff, specific to the actual problem, right? It's not a huge level of abstraction. It is something that bubbles up a real problem from below. And similarly, you know, that's how legislation is supposed to work. Congress, you know, congressional committees are supposed to do fact findings. They're supposed to bring in experts. They're supposed to have the experts, you know, explain to them how to make their proposed legislation better. Um, and there's supposed to be a lot of compromise and haggling and, and getting stakeholders and bringing in um, other members of the coalition and all these kinds of things. But again, it's supposed to work from the bottom up. And instead now we have the system, which was not what the framers intended. It's not really what anybody who has written the laws and rules of procedure for Congress ever intended. Um, at least not until the last 15 years, um, that basically says Nancy Pelosi and her inner circle or Paul Ryan and his inner circle or John Boehner and his inner circle going all the way back, they um, can't risk a vote getting away from them, their party getting away from them, losing a vote, all that kind of stuff. So they write the legis- they essentially craft the legislation from above and then say, and then go call all the members and say, okay, this is what you're voting on today or tomorrow. Um, and, and so it's a natural consequence of that. When these guys go out to vote, they first of all can't really talk about a lot of legislation that they crafted. Um, not any, I mean, again, there's, there's, there's some legislation that comes up from below, but it's, you know, it's like press release stuff and post office naming and all. And yeah. And, um, but so then when it comes time, and obviously you're going to vote with your party and all that crap. So by the time you are out there running for re-election, of course your opponent can say you voted 100% of the time with your party because 
that's how the legislation got passed in the first place. And, um, you know, and, and, and again, this it goes back to Denny Hastert. And before that, you know, what we need is regular order where, you know, I, I, I was very pro contract with America. I think, I still think some of the things it did were good. Um, uh, breaking the Democrats control on Congress was a good thing. Um, but like we have so, uh, castrated, uh, or I'm sorry, we've so, um, um, weakened, castrated, such a better word, gelded, but it's just so gendered, um, committee chairman that, uh, you know, it used to be like the most feared people in Washington were these, you know, these old bulls, you know, like the, the, the chairman of the ways and means committee, Dan Rostenkowski and that kind of thing. And, you know, it's still better to be the chairman than not be the, the chairman, but, uh, they've been, uh, ripped off of so much of their power that uh, it's distorted politics all the way downstream. Okay. So I'm torn about this. I planned on writing about this, but now everybody has already written about it. I talked about it on the podcast. I recorded a podcast yesterday with Shadi Hamid that'll air on Tuesday. I about uh, Biden's union station, save democracy speech. Um, and I just feel like writing about it today will be kind of stale. So I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, but I hated it. I really hated it. I hated it um, because I thought it was an abdication of responsibility. Um, as I pointed out, I've, you know, on the dispatch podcast, and I guess on the, maybe I, I got to come up with a different analogy. I can't use the same analogy on three different podcasts, but um, so I'll get back to that analogy thing in a second. So I really, I hated, I hated Biden's, um, speech doesn't mean I disagreed with everything in it. The problem is, is that as a lot of people pointed out now, um, he wants it both ways. He wants to say that he is a, is a, a neutral arbiter and champion of democracy, qua democracy. Um, he has all of these stupid lines about how, um, uh, democracy is on the ballot and that, you know, democracy is about choice. Um, but then he says, essentially, if you don't vote for Democrats, you don't believe in democracy or you're voting against democracy. He says, there's a lot of things, there are a lot of things at stake in this election, but one more of them is the very future of democracy itself. And basically what he's saying is all those other things that are at stake this election don't matter. And you have to vote for Democrats because if you don't, then the Republicans are going to end democracy. And um, look, I, I think a lot of the things that some of these Republicans are doing and saying is outrageous and grotesque and indefensible. Um, I think the sort of uh, the sort of election trutherism that has taken over vast swaths of Republican Party is really, really poisonous. Um, to democracy. And I will, I will say up front before I make this point that it's, that in many cases, it's far worse than what's going on with the democratic party about elections. But a lot of the stuff that has been going on in the democratic party for years is poisonous and corrosive of democracy as well. Um, the lies about widespread voter suppression and Jim Crow 2.0 
that we've heard for a long, not just in the last couple of years, but for a long time are corrosive of democracy. People forget, you know, but I remember getting inundated with um, uh, BS from left-wing outlets and that left-wing readers or critics um, about uh, the 2004, uh, you know, presidential election with the Diebold machines being rigged for Bush in Ohio and all this kind of stuff. This stuff, there's a lot of this out there. And, um, and I think that the, the idea that, yes, that I'm making a both sides argument and I believe in it. That doesn't mean I think the two sides are equal and all that kind of stuff. But I really, I, I find that there is almost a, a, a mirror image in the logic and argumentation between the most virulent anti-Trump people and the most virulent pro-Trump people. Um, virulent's probably a wrong word. Passionate. Um, in the sense that, you know, Joe Biden says that, you know, the whole, Joe Biden's whole argument on Wednesday at Union Station was that, uh, was a Flight 93 argument. Was that, you know, like, like democracy, the future, it's an existential threat. The, the future of democracy is on the line. Um, this is something that we hear constantly from, from you know, uh, people who want to scold and bully people into voting Democratic. And part of the problem with that is that it's, it's, it's undemocratic. Like to tell people, no, you can't vote on inflation. No, you can't vote on school lockdowns. No, you can't vote on transgender stuff. No, you can't vote on the economy in general. You must vote to save democracy. Um, or you're essentially pro-authoritarianism. And, and, and that's not a misreading of his speech. Um, um, is almost verbatim are almost identical to the BS about how we have to charge the cockpit and that America is over if Hillary is president. Um, it's the same logic. It's the same form of argumentation. It's the same form of moral bullying. And you can, you can make a case that, that the vote for Democrats to save democracy case is stronger than the vote for Trump to save democracy um, case was in 2016. But so what? They're both bad cases. Um, you know, and it's, 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 it's so incredibly frustrating that, um, you know, I, I don't know how to put this. Um, I hate the phrase our democracy. You hear it constantly from, uh, TV talking heads from Biden, from Democrats. Um, you hear it more, I would bet you than, American democracy. And there is something about, there's, there's a kind of dog whistle to this phrase, our democracy. If you listen to the way sort of MSNBC hosts say it, it's kind of like this, you know, coded kind of thing that says it's, you know, it's our democracy. It's you, dear MSNBC, Rachel Maddow found, Rachel Maddow fans out there. It's our democracy nudge nudge wink wink um and if you say american democracy by definition you are including beneficiaries of democracy who disagree with you about politics and um look I, again i could be 
I could be projecting on some of this, but I don't think I am because there is this longer term tendency, particularly among progressives to talk about problems. You know, there's a point that Richard Rorty makes in, you know, what's what's it called? Achieving our nation, our country. Uh, It's a nice little book on, um, on, on, on nationalism. I'll look it up right now for your listeners. Um, Rorty achieving our country. I think that's it. Anyway, you know, he makes this point that, you know, the American left uh, wasted an enormous amount of time turning its back on nationalism um, or, or patriotism. I'm not talking about the nationalism of like the the new nationalists Um, um, by hitching its wagon to all of these sort of Marxist and and Bolshevik theorists about, um, you know, which made things into, you know, reified cold historical material forces and all this kind of stuff, rather than looking to our own tradition of reform and progress um, to fix things. And I think that there's some of that, maybe not for the re- entirely for the reasons that Rorty attributes, because I think it's, there's something deeper going on, but there's something in progressive rhetoric that try, that is constantly trying to universalize things and erase national American identity. And, um, and I think this is one of the few areas where the sort of, uh, the nationalist crowd has a point. Um, you know, uh, I don't like, I, I think sort of the rich Lowry Ramesh Panuru version of this has a lot of merit while the Yoram Hazoni sort of version of this, never mind the sort of Christian nationalist crowd is garbage. Um, and that's just a distinction I'm happy to draw, but regardless, um, you know, it's this cosmopolitan thing, you know, we're citizens of the world rather than citizens of a specific country with a specific tradition and a specific culture, even if part of our culture is the embrace of, of dynamism and change, which is what, which it is, which is one of the things I love about this culture. It doesn't mean we don't have a culture. Right. And I remember laughing quite hard. Uh, listening to Kamala Harris when she's going around pushing her book, which is part of this like, trial run to run for president in 2020. I don't remember the name of it, and Lord knows I wasn't going to read it. But, um, you know, I watched her. I think it must have been on Morning Joe. Uh, you know, she, but I saw her versions of this a bunch of times, and then it turned out it was like part of her stump thing on the, on the hustings when she was running. But she was asked, you know, you know, well, you know like, is there any hope? Are we too divided? Blah, blah, blah. You know, a bunch of different versions of those kinds of things. And she would always try to sound optimistic by saying, um, some version of, Oh, there's hope because the things that unite us are stronger than the things that divide us. And then she had these sort of standard talking points about the things that unite us. And all of them could have been just as true of Canadians or Costa Ricans or Belgians. It was like, we all worry about how our kids are going to go to school, do in school and whether they're going go to go to college. We all worry whether, whether they're going to have the resources to retire. We all worry about whether we're going to get um, laid off or not. There was nothing that wasn't just sort of true of vast swaths of bipedal carbon-based life forms on this planet. And, and, 
extremely little that had anything to do with like being Americans or commitment to American principles or American culture or anything like that. It was all just reducing things to material need. And, um, and I think that this our democracy thing fits that because when you say our democracy, it, it lets you let off the hook, the people who lie about massive voter suppression and, you know, talk about Jim Crow 2.0, um, and who, um, um, think it's okay for Stacey Abrams or Hillary Clinton to deny legitimacy of elections. Um, but the ultimate sin for Donald Trump to do it. And don't get me wrong. I think it is, I want to be really clear about this. I think barring any evidence, um, of, and I mean, serious evidence of, of serious voter fraud. Um, it is horrible to cast doubt on the legitimacy of elections. It's just horrible. And I, I use this analogy someplace else, but like, I guess it was on the, the shoddy podcast, which was going to be out Tuesday, but um, imagine what it would do to sports if players, coaches, and fans all endorsed the idea that if you really wanted to win, but you lost, you could just reject the scoreboard, right? You could say the, the coaches fixed it. It's not real. Um, we're going to proceed as if we really won. Um, it would be the end of sports, right? It would just be the end of sports. Well, if you cannot abide by the finality of the vote tally, barring some serious evidence of criminal fraud, um, it really is the end of democracy. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's a terrible way to go. Um, I just think that like, a lot of people should take the splinters out of their own eyes on this stuff because people have been chipping away at democracy and the legitimacy of it for a very long time. I'm tempted to get into a long spiel about John Dewey, who was in many ways the most important philosopher of the 20th century, I would say, in America. Um, I would say it's more William James because Dewey was so influenced by William James, but John Dewey was certainly more politically um, and culturally influential um, in progressive circles in the 20th century in terms of his impact on um, education and, and really on, on how we think about democracy in general. And uh, no, he's not the inventor of the Dewey Decimal System. That's a different Dewey. Uh, pretty sure about that. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, John Dewey had this view of, he had this, on a screwed up view of democracy as it was very much a social democracy understanding um, that empowered uh, experts in the state to mold human beings into the best version of a citizen, according to the, the social engineers. Um, I don't think I am being unfair there. Uh, someone can send me an email if they think I am being. And, um, and that's sort of, I mean, that is in many ways the, um, the democracy of the social democratic left for a very, very long time. And certainly of the further left, um, actually that's a good, that's a good segue point. Um, I wrote this column, uh, my Romeo LA times column, it's up at the dispatch. 
about Putin. And because um, I actually I read into uh, this these remarks he gave about 10 days ago where he was talking about the hegemony of the, or the, the, the imperialism of the West and of, of, of the United States and NATO and um, the forces of liberalism by which he means, you know, my kind of liberalism, uh, democracy, rule of law, yada, yada, yada. Um, and one of the most remarkable things about it was how unserious it is. Um, but the way it was phrased would, you could just, you can just, what is so interesting about Putin's propaganda efforts is that he frames things in ways that the, cranks and radicals of the West will hear exactly what they want to hear. And it's quotable for them. Right. It's like, um, it's the kind of, you know, they're the kind of like bumper sticker slogans that, um, that tickle the erogenous zones of everybody from the Chomsky's and the Greenwalds to the, the Carlson's and the Amari's. And, um, but it's all such horseshit. Sorry, I know I'm not supposed to curse on this. Um, it's so internally incoherent and inconsistent and wildly hypocritical. Um, you know, the, the, you know, Putin has all this stuff where he's talking about how um, racist and neocolonial and imperialist the West is and that our wealth is based on racism and neocolonial and colonialism and imperialism and yada, 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 yada. And first of all, look, I'm, I'm very much in the Deirdre McCloskey camp on, on a lot of this stuff. It's actually just not true that, that like slavery and imperialism is the, is responsible for the wealth of the West. Um, you can make a case, you know, I mean, Marx certainly believed, you know, the whole King cotton thesis and all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, this is not to minimize the evil of slavery um, or really the evils of, of imperialism and colonialism in, in a lot of instances, but uh, um, it's just not true that, but for those things, um, America would be a poor country. Um, of course they contributed to the GDP, but that's a, just a different argument than saying that they are responsible for the massive increase in wealth over the last 300 years in the West. Um, but that's a subject for my book. That's a, you know, that's a subject for a lot of different books. Um, we can talk about that another time. Um, I just, the evidence is pretty clear to me. Um, cause I spent a, that's one of the reasons why, you know, in suicide of the West, I call liberal democratic capitalism or the locking revolution or whatever you want to call it. What I call this great enrichment, which, which George McCrossey, McCloskey calls it, like, the great fact or whatever. I call it the miracle is because no one really knows where it comes from. Deirdre's explanation is the one that I'm most sympathetic to. But um, uh, everyone agrees that it happened. No one really has a good explanation for it that in the sense that everyone can agree on the explanation. You know, it's like you can agree that something is happening, but there's a lot of disagreement about why it happened. Anyway, all of Putin's stuff is this warmed over 1970s kind of Marxist English department gobbledygook that is just so trite and cliched. 
Um, and I, I find it very funny how many people, particularly on this sort of new right, um, think it's like insightful or, or bold or serious, but that's not the point. The point is, is like, it's so, first of all, it's incredibly hypocritical. <laughs> I mean, it's like hilariously hypocritical. Really? The, the, the Soviet Union super fan who thinks the fall of the Soviet Union was the worst calamity of the 20th century um, is against imperialism. Um, I think it was Krauthammer used to talk about how like since 1945, the Soviet Union increased in size by like uh, the equivalent land mass of Belgium every year or something like that. If someone could find that exact quote, that'd be awesome. But um, or maybe it was since 1917. Doesn't matter. You know, the invaders of Afghanistan, the conquerors and occupiers of Eastern Europe, like really the Soviet Union wasn't into imperialism. And then he's like his other big, you know, uh, um, obsession is the is 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 imperial Russia, which was imperial. That's like what they call it. Imperial Russia. Czar means emperor. Um, I mean, it's derived from Caesar, but like that's the whole point. And um, uh, the Russian empire was an empire. Uh, and he thinks both the Soviet version of it and the czarist version of it, of empire were, were super terrific. Awesome. Plus the Soviet union and Russia are wildly racist, wildly racist. Um, they were during the, 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 the Soviet union days. And I mean, the, the West never gave it, the Western left never gave it anything like the coverage they wanted it to, because they wanted to use the ideals of the Soviet Union or the, 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 the myth of the Soviet Union as a cudgel against the United States. And the KGB was very, 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 very good at exploiting all of that. You know, we talked about that a bunch. Um, but, you know, like during the Soviet days, you would get, you know, uh, uh, women, would, women, women who had a certain amount of children would get like Hero of the Motherland awards for having above replacement rate fertility, but only if they were sort of white ethnic Russians or, you know, are close to it. If you were, you know, some, you know, dark skinned guy from a woman from, um, you know, the steppes of inner Mongolia and that kind of thing, you didn't get one of those awards. Um, and, uh, and don't even get me started on Russian anti-Semitism and, and Soviet anti-Semitism. Um, and you know, you can go down the list, he, his stuff about economics, about mercantile, like, like the idea that somehow Russia is against mercantilist, you know, kind of commerce is just, it's ridiculous. So all of it's just like incredibly hypocritical, but what's interesting to me, and this was sort of the point of the column is we hear all these people talking about how, how, you know, starting with Putin himself, that, that the Russian model provides an alternative to the stale, atrophied, uh, um, fading, putrescent model of liberal democratic capitalism, which is exactly the argument that was made in the 1920s for fascism and the 1930s for communism, um, in the 1890s for uh, Bismarckian uh, socialism. Um, in the 1980s for Japanese industrial policy, in the 1990s for uh, Chinese 
um, uh, bureaucratic uh, industrial planning. You know, it's just like, it's the same friggin' thing. But at least in those cases, it was often grounded on actual economic growth um, and, and industrialization. Russia has no industrialization and economic growth to be envious of. I mean, Russia is like among the most stagnant nations in the world. It's sad. It's pathetic. Um, you know, they, um, I, I think Russia has, I'm sure California has a much larger GDP than Russia. Um, probably New York does too. But the point is, is like, like the, the new Russia envy on the, at least on the sort of American nationalist right, which is, you know, adjacent to the Orban envy, is all of this atmospheric uh, cultural stuff. Putin doesn't like the gays and Putin's against cancel culture. I love, I love Putin's speeches about cancel culture and his, his, in, you know, his exhortations against cancel culture. The guy has people literally canceled in the sense of murdered. And he's supposed to be like a big opponent of cancel culture. He sends people to prison who disagree with him or criticize him. And he's criticizing the West's cancel culture. I mean, Jesus, people take it seriously. It's amazing what suckers people are for taking Putin seriously at his own words when it's so obviously nonsense. I'm not saying that Putin doesn't believe his own nonsense, but that doesn't mean it's not nonsense. It's so ridiculous. And, um, but so what, what's interesting to me about it is that uh, the concepts he's appealing to for the most part are Western concepts, right? You know, I mean, like, like he is you like this, this, this condemnation of Western racism, whatever merit or lack thereof you want to ascribe to those accusations. Like that's a Western criticism. That is, you know, like, you know, this is something that I think a lot of people on the sort of, you know, uh, Rigoberto Menchu left, um, really uh, have confused the issue of like the reason why a lot of third world countries accuse America of racism. Partly it's because we've been racist in the past to be sure, you know, I'm not denying that, but because they know the charge of racism and bigotry works on Americans, right? It's very similar to, you know, my standard riff about Gandhi where Gandhi advocated nonviolence um, and all of that against the British because he knew it would work on the British because whatever the flaws and excesses of the British empire were, he understood that the British actually had a well crafted, um, a well molded conscience and that they were appealable. Their consciences were appealable to, by, by to uh, appealable to by reason and moral suasion. And, um, but you know, he was not a consistent person on this kind of stuff. You know, he never told Hitler, you know, violence never solved anything. Don't use violence. Um, he told the British when Hitler came to power or was rising, he told the British to surrender. Um, he says, you know, give up your homes, give up your beautiful island, um, but keep your principles. Like that's a principle the British hold. Um, he told the Jews just to commit mass suicide um, in face of, uh, of, of, of the Holocaust. And um, anyway, so the point is like, you know, a lot of these you know, African countries, Asian countries, China does this all the time. It, it, it dings the American conscience about racism when China is a profoundly racist country. China, China has Jim Crow laws, as I keep trying to point out to people. 
China believes in Han Chinese supremacy. If you're not Han Chinese, you are a second-class citizen throughout all of China. You can't go to the best schools. You can't get the best jobs. You often can't even get an internal passport to leave your village. Um, it's not like China is against racism. They just know that Americans are against racism. And just the same way that the Russians used to, you know, the, the origins of whataboutism are literally, go look at the whataboutism page on Wikipedia. The actual headline of it is, I think in the in the U.S. they hang Negroes too, because it was a standard propaganda technique of the Soviet Union to respond to any criticism to talk about lynching in the American South. And lynching in the American South was terrible, but it was terrible against our standards. It wasn't terrible against you know the land of the pogrom. Um, so anyway, like anti-racism, the, the 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 charge of racism that Putin raises is. Um, a essentially a Western ideal. And you know what else is? Democracy. Putin, the reason why Putin apparently hated Hillary Clinton is that when she was Secretary of State, she questioned the legitimacy of the election, um, of his election. When he wanted to, um, when he wanted to sort of cement his annexation of uh, Donetsk and uh, Luhansk or whatever, I'm sorry, Donbass and, and Luhansk and the, 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 the territories in eastern Ukraine. He did a sham election, a sham referendum on the question. Now, it was a sham, but even Putin felt like he needed the democratic legitimacy of a referendum to um, support um, uh uh, to lend credibility to his military annexation of another country's territory. Why? If, if what he's providing is an alternative to Western liberalism, um, if what he's providing is an alternative to outdated and outmoded um, uh, democracy, why does he need a referendum to support his position? There's a point, you know, a lot of us made, you know, in the cold war, this is one of my dad's obsessions. Um, you know, North Korea calls itself the, you know, the uh, Democratic Republic of Korea. Um, uh, you know, you had all of these, you know, you know, China is the, the People's Republic of China. Um, uh, you go through the list of like all of those official names of all of those authoritarian and totalitarian um, states. And it was... Um, and they always, almost always invoked some reference to Republican or Democratic principles. And, uh, of course, it was a lie, but the lie was a tell, right? It was like they don't have an alternative theory of what conveys legitimacy other than, essentially, democracy. You know, think about it this way. There's no... Um, uh, you know, like the idea of the rule of law, right? Of of fair courts, of uh, due process, of um, um, of equal justice, right? I mean, these the, the large cohort of ideas and concepts that inform what we think a criminal justice system should look like, from courts to prosecutions to arrests, all the rest. Um, I can make a very sincere argument about how that is essentially a Western 
you know, it's a bunch of Western principles, liberal principles, Western liberal principles, whatever. But the truth is, is that they're more than just Western liberal principles. They're at this point, human principles. I mean, find a country in the world that is um, remotely modern, right? Remotely out of tribal, uh, let me put it this way. Well, I think even in tribes, in tribal societies, the idea of impartial justice is deeply embedded in our sense of natural law and natural rights and, 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 and fundamental morality. Um, 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 it's just that in a tribe, you think the people within the tribe should benefit from those rules and people outside of the tribe shouldn't. And, you know, again, suicide, the West point part of what modernity is, is, you know, there's a very earnest Gellner point too, um, is expanding the definition of the group to the largest level possible, um, to scale it up. And that's, um, what nations are uh, to large, everybody who's an American citizen has the same rights to a fair trial, to confront their accuser, uh, to uh, the right of self-defense, right? The right against self-incrimination, all that kind of stuff, whether you're a billionaire or a homeless guy, that's the principle. And um, show me the country in the world that I can, I got, I got this way. I can show you plenty of countries that don't live up to that principle. Show me a country that rejects the principle publicly, right? No Russian says, oh yeah, our courts don't believe in equal justice or fair justice. Um, no, you know, I'm sure the Chinese Communist Party believes that, you know, or no, I'm not saying it believes it. I'm saying the Chinese Communist, Party, Chinese Communist Party says it, that they have impartial justice and that everybody gets a fair hearing and that there are rules of evidence and yada, yada, yada. They just don't apply it and no one believes them because their courts are corrupt. Same thing as, as in Russia. But if you want to make the case that these things are part of the le liberal Western tradition, you know, what has two thumbs and loves the Western liberal tradition and this guy. But the simple fact is, is that part of the Western liberal tradition was to identify these more universal concepts of justice these more universal concepts of the, of, of right. Um, and do the hard work of figuring out how to apply them, um, where the rubber meets the road. And, um, that the, you know, and so like when Putin complains about how it's the, the mere claim of universality of Western democratic liberalism or liberal democratic capitalism is there is is the West's form of imperialism? What he's really saying is um, that he rejects those things, and yet he is utterly incapable of coming up with a coherent, rational, never mind appealing, alternative theory of how to organize a society. And, um, and I think that this is, you know, this sort of gets to why Fukuyama was right or why Calvin, Calvin Coolidge was right. Praise be upon him. Um, because no one has figured out, I'm sorry, it's like, I, I've yet to see what the theory, what the actual program of 
Victor Orban's is that is an alter, a true alternative to uh, Western liberalism. A corrective to the excesses of Western liberalism? Okay, fine. I'm open to some of that. Um, you know, uh, I thought Fukuyama's chapter on on the excesses of Rawlsian liberalism was 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 very well taken. And there are excesses. This idea of that you know uh, that personal autonomy and self definition um, can be taken to any extreme. That you know notions of social justice or justice um, as defined in, in sort of redistributive ways or, or social justice ways um, uh, should take precedence over all other things. I, there are all sorts of you know uh, Rousseauian, Rawlsian problems with the way we do liberalism in the West. I, that's why I'm a conservative. I totally believe that, but I'm a conservative who still wants to conserve liberalism, rightly understood. And no one has come up with an argument for how to get rid of it, which is why I think people should take a grain of salt when we swing back towards our democracy stuff. You know, Biden in his speech, he talks about how he's not the only one who sees this threat to democracy. Polls show that X percent of Americans um, feel like democracy is under threat. Oh, yeah. But the problem is, is that that a lot of the, that number are Republicans who think the threat to democracy are Democrats. And a lot of Democrats who think the threat to democracy are Republicans. And, um, but in all of this stuff, the number of people who are against the concept of democracy is vanishingly small. I mean, like vanishingly small. Um, you know, I mean, there are the Michael Flynn idiots and hotheads and lunatics and a few other self-described radicals who think they're being incredibly clever by unearthing ideas that were old when, you know, cavemen were scratching their asses. Um, but uh, um, for the most part, everybody thinks they're on the side of the democracy. Even Donald Trump thinks he's on the side of democracy in the sense, not in the sense that he thinks... I don't know whether he thinks he actually won or not. He just thinks that him personally winning is better than anything else. But all of his arguments were about giving him political cover to say that he won democratically somehow. It's very Putin-esque, right? I mean, Putin still pays lip service to the principle of democracy, the sovereignty of democracy, to the the idea that democracy is the ne plus ultra of things. He just wants to use that moral or philosophical authority of democracy for his own personal benefit, which is what dictators always want to do. And I'm not saying that Trump was a dictator. I think he'd be perfectly happy to be a dictator, but he also likes to be, he also wants to be popular. He also wants to say he didn't lose, right? If he really just hated democracy, he wouldn't care whether he lost or not. He would just say, I deserve to be here. But that is not a principle that anybody except a handful of, of, of psychopaths and, and buffoons actually respect. Like you have to have, if, 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 if communist China and Soviet Russia had to pay lip service to democracy, do you think anybody in the United States of America um, can get power without paying lip service to democracy? Come on. 
And so I think the commitment to democracy, qua democracy, is quite strong in this country. It is so deeply embedded in our culture. In fact, I, you know, I've been making this argument for years now. A big part of our problem is we have too much democracy, which by which I don't mean that we shouldn't have elections. I just mean that like we should, we should, we should curtail and restrain and constrain um, democracy to those things that democracy is for and not use it for anything else because democracy is only good for the things democracy is good for. You know, in the same way that the rules of monopoly are not very useful for getting a rocket to the moon. And um, we have this sort of, you know, problem of we think, you know, let's, you know, it's like the free speech thing. You know, any problem with free speech, let's rub more free speech into it. Any problem with democracy, let's rub more democracy into it. I don't believe that. I am very pro-democracy. But as I was telling Shadi, you know, uh, yesterday, which you'll hear on Tuesday, my apologies, is like democracy's chief value isn't for delivering good outcomes, but as a hedge against bad outcomes. It's an, it's an escape valve. It's a circuit breaker. It's a chance for a do-over. It is not a guarantor of, of happy fun time. And... um. But so anyway, like this, this, this notion that democracy is under threat. Yeah. Again, these election denying jackwads are buffoons. Doug Mastriano's buffoon. The, the various guys are running for secretary of state buffoons, uh, maybe dangerous buffoons. We'll see. But even they are not arguing that democracy is bad. It is like we have been living under the tyranny of a straw man for friggin' several years now where everybody says, like there are all of these forces out there who hate democracy in America. And then you try to find them and you go do a man on the street interview with them. And they're talking about how great democracy is and how it's under threat by the other side. Now, I don't think that they're right about some of the, you know, it depends who they're talking to and what they think the threat is and all that kind of stuff and what the other side means and all that kind of stuff. But at the level of high concept, you know, it's, it's just simply not true that there is this huge movement against democracy here. There's a huge movement or a significant movement to attain power by any means necessary and then declare that you did it democratically. And that's evil and bad and wrong. And I hate it, but let's identify the problem correctly. Um, instead, there's this, you know, we, there's this sort of nurturing virtue signaling wallowing in our own sanctimonious superiority that says we love democracy and you don't. You know, we love our democracy. And I think it's, there's a lot of garbage to it. Anyway, so now I can't write about it because I talked about it here and I try to stay true to the promise that I don't rob Peter to pay Paul when it comes to podcasting and punditry. Gotta love that alliteration. All right, uh, I've gone a little long. Um, Adam can edit as he sees fit. Uh, I gotta go get a passport renewed, write a G file. Um, and do all sorts of incredibly depressing things uh, in terms of uh, getting my mom's affairs in order. Um, and uh, again, I, I really, I don't want to get all sappy, but I, I am very grateful to the, 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 the support and compassion from so many um, listeners and readers and dispatch members. And I'm hugely grateful. Um, and uh, um, 
That's it. Gratitude is good. All right. Have a good one. And I'll talk to you next time.